The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quirky Dog Podcast, inspired by some of the quirkiest dogs you can ever imagine and the owners who love them. This podcast is brought to you by the quirky couple themselves, Scott and Jess Williams. Their aim is to educate and entertain. Here's Scott and Jess. Welcome, guys. Today, we are going to go over our origin story and let you know a little bit more about who we are and how we got here. But first, we're going to start with the quirky tip of the day. So it's that season in New England. We got our first snowfall and the snow is still on the ground. What the hell is that stuff? Oh, here we go with Scott. Um, and there's a lot of products out there that are supposed to be safe on dog's paws, but hands down, this is my favorite one. This is called Safe Paw. It's an ice melter. You can get on Amazon. You can get it at some specialty pet stores. But a lot of those bigger bags at Home Depot and everything that say pet safe, one, I don't see them actually melting the ice as well. And two, sometimes that's stuck to my dog's paws. So this is by far my favorite product for dogs and their paws. In the wintertime, the only weird thing about it is we were shoveling the other day and I was like, what's on the snow? Is it antifreeze? So you have to remember that the snow is going to be a little bit different color with it if you're shoveling and moving the ice and the salt, but this is your go-to. Why can't you just use regular salt? Well, if you want to put Musher's Secret on your dog's paws, like we discussed last week, we could. However, that can be a little bit of a boo-boo for the dogs and the paws. Yeah, so the salt kind of hurts their feet, I guess, huh? Yeah, and actually, we're going to piggyback off that. The little hair between their feet... Trim that up because if they have extra hair, they're going to get more ice balls and everything else. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. between (laughs) between their pads. That's what we're going for, between (laughs) the pads. You don't want that all long and dangly or they get more ice accumulation and snow accumulation and then the salt is in there and irritating them and it's a whole to-do. So everything's about the dogs in case you guys weren't (laughs) sure how we we work. That's how our marriage goes. Yeah. All right, so we're going to start. We're going to time this here because we're trying to be on the ball about our segments and stuff. So we're going to start with my... Very dear husband, Scott, and he's going to tell you guys a little bit about himself. Are you ready to go? Yeah, yeah. Normally, I would invoke the fifth when it comes to the first third of my All life. Right, well, let's, let's just see what we got. You're on the clock. Let's go. Okay. I was born in Gloucester, Massachusetts, a little fishing city. Is that the, where they filmed that movie? Which movie is that, Jess? The Perfect Storm? Are you taking up my five minutes? All right. I'll quiet down. And... Um, so I grew up, I was born in 62, so I you know, grew up in the 60s and 70s when everyone drank beer and went to rock concerts, and I did a heck of a lot of that myself, and uh, got in a lot of trouble along the way, enjoyed drinking beer with all my buddies, and it wasn't as big a deal as it is these days with, you know, IDing to buy beer and stuff like that, and um, when everyone went off to college at the end of high school, I wound up going into the Marine Corps, and my drinking kind of didn't make that experience as easy as it could have been because I was hung over all the time. And uh, getting into my 20s, I started, I went out to California about three or four times just traveling and going on these road trips and trying to, I don't know, live life without a lot of responsibility. I, um, I bought a sailboat at one point, slept on, the, lived on the sailboat, drove a Harley all over New England and did a lot of crazy stuff. It was and, a real chick magnet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Girls love homeless people. <laughs> and uh, so in the later, in the, in the uh, my late 80s, I wound up moving out to California in 88 
decided to just move out there permanently. I had already been out there three or four times, decided to move out there. And um, you're oh, doing good. We're doing great. I know. You're moving right through. This is good for um, you. So I moved out there in 88. And uh, part of it was what they call a geographic cure, where I just thought I need to get away from all these hellraisers and they're getting me in trouble. And, you know, I need to go start a new life. I moved out to California. And within three months, I got a drunk driving in California. So that was kind of an eye opener for me that. You know, I really was the problem. I had to take care of my drinking. I wound up quitting drinking and going to AA and doing all that stuff. And now I've been sober for 30 years. So it was a, it was a good thing to do. And um, when I got sober, I wound up kind of, really that's kind of where my life started. You know, because up to that point, I was kind of stalled at the emotional age of maybe 14. And I just wasn't acting like an adult and after I got sober, I wound up just getting serious. I wound up getting in a relationship, getting married, starting a family, started a roofing business. Uh, and then I got into the dogs. And this is, uh, I got into the dogs because I was working so much. I needed a hobby. I needed something fun to do. And I always wanted to get involved with dogs. It's just that my, my drinking and my lifestyle was not conducive to me owning a dog. And I just didn't want to take responsibility for a dog and then well I just wasn't I just wasn't responsible enough to own a dog was the bottom line this is your two-minute warning yeah okay and so I started getting into protection sports uh getting into wearing the suit and having dogs uh biting me and it really kind of got me into the present and made me focus on that it was a good adrenaline rush and it was a lot of fun so that was how I initially got involved with dogs was through police dogs and dog sports and I think that pretty much brings me right up to it. Well, you got to get back to mass. So then you started a training business. Okay. So yeah, I got involved with the dogs. And then I, um, after a few years of training, I decided to start the dog obedience business and uh, closed the roofing business and went full-time with the dog training around 2005. And then in 2009, moved back to Massachusetts. Because your mom had cancer. Mom had cancer. And that was uh, one of my kids to get to know their grandparents and... Um, so we moved back to the East Coast. And the dog training, he always says, gave him a lot more time to work with your own dog because yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot that, more freedom. The main reason I, joined, I started the dog training business was so that I could train my dog during the day whenever I wanted to. And uh, it was great. It, and it was much more pleasant than roofing. And you then know. when you came back to Massachusetts, what was the difference with your business? People didn't know you here. Well, I had to start all over again when I came to Mass because I had an established business in Los Angeles. And when I came here, of course, you know, people didn't know me here because it was a Los Angeles-based business, very regional, local business. So I had to kind of start all over again in 2009 here with the dog training business. And it took, it took a couple of years to get off the ground, a lot of work, you know. How many years were you doing both? California the roofing and, and, and the dog no, training? No, California and Mass. How many years? Like three uh, or four? Yeah, I did keep the, the California one going and I had someone there working uh, for me there that was training dogs. But... I think it was, yeah, probably about two two to three years where both of them were going, and then I discontinued the Los Angeles company. You killed it. He is so bad about staying on time. And All he I needs a little coaching. Five minutes right now. All right, let's do the pig for the segment change. All right, good job. Okay, <laughs> so it's my turn, and then we're going to uh, bounce back and forth after the break here. So I was born um, in Hinsdale, Illinois, which is a suburb of <clears> Chicago, <throat> and um, I grew up in a town called Lombard, Illinois. And I had border collies ever since I was young. My mom got 
me a dog when I was like three years old. And then we bred border collies and I was just raised with dogs. I was an only child, but dogs were my whole life. So when I was seven, I wanted to get involved with dog sports. And my mom would take me to places and say like, oh, you know, she wants to do this. She wants to do this. And nobody would touch it with a 10 foot pole. It was in the nineties. Kids weren't really into doing things with dogs actively. It was very traditional obedience training. Obedience people didn't want to deal with me. Hurting people didn't want to deal with me. Agility people were like, oh, you know, we have adult classes, everything else. So I got involved in a sport called Frisbee. It's now called DISC. It's very proper to say DISC now. But um, it was canine Frisbee. So I started playing Frisbee with my dog. And um, lo and behold, I was decently good at it. The first time I ever went and competed, I was seven years old. And I competed at this big regional competition. And long story short, by the time I was 15 years old, I was the youngest person to ever qualify for the world finals in this sport. And I got to go down and compete at the Worlds with people from Japan and all over the place. And it was a lot of fun. So that was kind of my jump start into dogs and enjoying dogs and competing with dogs and everything else. And I was a little more well-rounded than that. I played the cello. I was captain of the Palm Squad. I, you know, I had a life besides dogs, but dogs were always just the driving force. So outside of Frisbee, I also dappled with a little bit of dog agility and I enjoyed that. And then When I went to college at the University of Michigan, I actually toured around with um, canine production companies during my summers. So I would do fairs and theme parks with my dogs. I worked for two of the biggest um, canine production companies that there are. And that was a lot of fun. I loved it. It was um, really enjoyable. You got to see a lot of the country and everything else. The thing I hated the most about it was it affected my training. Because if you're there in front of a live audience and thousands of people are here watching you, and your dog does something like that they're not supposed to do. They break their sit-stay to go in the weave poles early. You're not going to say, oh, I've got to stop the show to fix my dog. So I didn't like the way my training suffered because of it, but it was super fun. Um, Is we, that where you learned to project your voice? <laughs> <laughs> That's why my mic is on two and Scott's mic is on eight all the time. But no, legitimately, it was ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I mean, that was my life. I traveled around and I was a big carny. We did some theme parks. I got to go to the Dominican Republic. And it was all a great experience. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I was on the Oprah show. But like I said, I one thing, it's hard not to have a home base. Secondly, it's also really hard to have a few dogs and do canine entertainment because if you have a dog that gets older, they're not going to be performing at their top level anymore. If you have a dog that maybe is sore, you have to, you know, go back into your arsenal of dogs to pull from for the next show. And I didn't want to be somebody that had 10 to 13 dogs. So in college at the University of Michigan, in between this traveling, um, I got into the Ross School of Business, hated that, totally wasn't my scene. What school? (laughs) The Ross School of Business. Ross. Oh, Ross. Okay. (laughs) And um, everybody there was just really, uh, I mean, obviously they wanted to make money. They were in the business school, but everybody was like, I'm going to live in New York or Chicago. And they didn't want to have any land. And it just totally wasn't me. So I dropped out of the business school. I became a psychology major. And um, with being a psychology major, I concentrated kind of on animal behavior. So my dogs lived with me in an apartment. Um, At the end of my college days, I lived one year in a sorority, one year in the dorms. Um, But I had my dogs with me from junior year of college onward and, of course, before college. So it was great to go, work hard, party hard kind of mentality. Dogs had a lot of fun. They learned to drink some beer along the way, too. But the highlight of those years for me was doing the canine production. I learned a lot about dog training and a lot about tricks and just uh, a lot about the world as it relates to dogs and people loving them because people enjoy that. I mean, I'm sure you've been to a basketball show before and you've seen dogs at the halftime show or something else. And it definitely connected me within a network and everything else. And then after what, one college... One minute warning, by the way. 
Right. <laughs> I didn't get my two-minute warning. After college, um, I got my first adult um, puppy, like my own puppy. The dogs that I had used previously were kind of rescues and everything else. How did you get an adult for entertainment. puppy? I was an adult, and oh, I got a puppy okay. as an Go adult. It was my first puppy that I had as an adult. And um, I had moved to Colorado briefly. I thought maybe I wanted to live out there. Wasn't into snowboarding at all, but went to Colorado and um, was thinking about living in the mountains. And then what happened is we met mm. at a conference in Wisconsin. And that wasn't a big game changer when we had first met there. But uh, we were asked to speak at this conference. Scott was out there speaking um, for nose work, the C-spot sniff stuff that we've talked about before. Um, and then I was out there actually speaking about canine entertainment. So we were both at this conference in Wisconsin as speakers and we had met. And then that's what kind of changed the course of where I went geographically at some point and everything else. So that's a little bit about you, a little bit about me. And I'm at 505, even with you interrupting more. So we did pretty yeah. good. You know, our, um, our lives really kind of paralleled. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we both <laughs> knew what we wanted to do from an early age. I, when I when I started crawling, Scott decided he had to become sober so we could make it happen. All right, guys, that's a lot about us individually. Uh, when we get back from break, we're going to do a lot more about us and dogs combined. See you there. Does your dog seem anxious? Would you like your dog to relax? Do you want to feel more in control? Would you like your dog to cooperate? HowToCalmYourCanine.com That's HowToCalmYourCanine.com Woo-hoo! <laughs> All right, we're back. Short and sweet. Dang. That was a hell of a story, Jess. I know. Can you believe it? So to piggyback off my origin story, um, I had a little bit of time in between. I was supposed to go to a run with Doc Dogs and announce for them. And I said, oh, like I was talking, Scott and I had talked on the phone. We were just very platonic friends from the conference. And we had talked on the phone. And he goes, oh, I want to get this new thing started with fitness and everything else. And I said, oh, I got some time. I'll come out and help you work on it. So um, that's what got me to Massachusetts, New England, and everything else. So we are going to talk to you guys a little bit about us and dogs um, and what that looked like the first, I don't know, eight years of our lives. And then we're going to segue into canine healing and what that looks like for us and our future with dogs. Yeah, well, uh, my pet dog business was primarily boarding and training. So that's how I made my living, which meant I always had other people's dogs with me at my home or whatever the situation was. And it's a it's a relatively stressful business for any dog trainer to have dogs that have a lot of behavioral problems is, you know, uh, to kind of get them on track. You know, there's always going to be some noise and, you know, anxiety, things like that. So that's kind of what I was doing. And um, when Jess came out here, we started to get this new business, uh, this this idea off the ground, which was. Uh, a fitness class, I, and um, it was like a it was like circuit training yeah. for dogs. Yeah, so we had all these different, you know, weight pull and all these different things that people would just go around and do all these different exercises. We were the kings and queens of PBC. Yeah, so I mean, it was fun. It was a lot of um, setup and whatnot, but we did it at a few different facilities uh, in New England and kind of weighed out the pros and cons of that whole yeah, thing. Yeah, that um, is becoming more of an industry now, and we still have yeah, that this name. Yeah, was a while ago. It's uh, Canine Profit, but um. 
that's something that we may look into as far as something associated with canine healing later. But that in and of itself didn't really become the big bread and butter or anything else. During that time that we were doing that, we were also training some bed bug dogs together. Um, Scott at a training location that we called the Bed Bug Palace, and uh, we were training some dogs, and it was fun. We Scott fed bed bugs on his arms, and we taught my dogs to get on bugs, and he was still kind of teaching dogs commercially at that point. So it was really fun, and we got to learn about each other a lot more as trainers, um, and we enjoyed being with each other as people and also as trainers. So that, well, that was being kind of, said, we came from very different training styles yeah. and backgrounds. I mean, we provide good balance to each other. Yeah, I'd say I had a more traditional. Uh, dog training foundation and and Jess was more you know with the frisbee it wasn't having to put a lot of control on dogs that are very difficult since she raised the dogs herself you know they she had a great working relationship with them from the beginning whereas I'm always taking dogs in that have almost no relationship with humans and trying to get them on track you know so it's a different thing yeah and um we did a lot of the boarding and training and stuff ourselves also. We had a little um, house that we rented in, near Boston, and um, it, it's tough. Like Scott said, the boarding and the training, it was fulfilling in that we could help these people that were having problems with their dogs, and we could make progress, and the dog could turn around and be more of a, a welcomed family member when they went home. But, I mean, Christmas morning, for however many Christmases passed, I have 30 dogs to let out. You know, Scott and I have a few of our own personal dogs, but you know, it's a busy time. People want to go away. They want to get their dogs trained. It was an everyday 24-7 thing. If we want to go on vacation, we have to shut down our business. And then we would go on vacation, and find a place for our dogs. And we even had a few employees to offset things when things were going well and we were really busy. And the nature of our business is the dogs that we got in were not suited for other people to deal with, if that makes sense. Like they were so difficult that they needed a certain professional to deal with them, and that was Scott and myself. So we really had our hands tied with that, that it was him and me, and that was it. It's just, yeah, it's hard to find people that are dog savvy enough to handle a dog that may have a, a fair amount of fear aggression and knowing how to handle that and not make the dog worse and not make the dog feel stronger through its negative behavior. Yeah, a lot of it's dogs tricky. came to us it's for tricky. aggression and anxiety and really every moment of interaction with those dogs counts. Like we were getting paid the big money to make a turnaround and we didn't want to get the same reps that they were getting at home with ourselves. And I would say the first five years of that um, was pretty smooth sailing. I mean, we had difficult dogs and it was hard, but for the most part, it was just people come in, they pay for classes, they pay for boot camp, they do their follow-up classes. We um, had a few different facilities around the Boston area where we were having group classes. Um, at one point, we had two facilities. We had a facility in Lowell. We had a facility in Salisbury. I mean, there was a lot going on during that time. And um, it was going well, but then it seemed like there was a little bit of a shift in how the people were able to handle the dogs, if that makes sense. So it became less about training and more about relationships. And it seemed more like we were just sitting there kind of talking people through stuff and working and them through their own personal stuff. Their willingness to follow through on working with the dog was getting weaker and weaker. They just wanted someone else to fix it, but they didn't want to implement any. And this is generally speaking, not everyone. But it was getting more, more and more difficult to get people to implement any kind of structure within their household. And, um, and that's what these dogs need for the most part is structure in the household. And so no matter what we're doing in a board and train situation, if they can't follow through and make some lifestyle changes, the dogs were just going to regress back to what they were originally, which made me feel like uh, I was kind of spinning my wheels. Both Justin and I, we felt like we were spinning our wheels in a sense that we're 
dealing with these difficult dogs, getting them on track, getting them actually going in the right direction and working well, and then to see them start backsliding quickly when they went back into their home environment got real frustrating. You know? And it was from a relationship perspective, not from a training perspective. So that was um, a little bit tricky. And then also people were just more resistant to putting control on dogs in general, similar to sometimes what you might say about parents with kids now. Like you'd say, oh, you should crate the dog. And people, I, I can't crate the dog. The dog can't be in a crate. Like these used to be more common practices when we were first doing this together and when Scott first got into the industry in California and then t- things kind of seemed to segue. Okay, so we went a little over with that five minutes, but that goes into the next one. So this is our last segment now of how we got to um, canine healing, and the pig can take a nap because he doesn't need to end this segment, the podcast on this one. So um, basically what was happening is we're training all these dogs. We'd sold our house. We actually moved into our dog training facility. We were all in. Like, we were doing this, and we're there, and we're cutting costs, and we have money in the bank, and it's just us anyway, so we might as well be there because we had to go there to let dogs out four times a day anyway. And we just weren't seeing the same results that we had seen earlier, like we talked about. And we were frustrated. We felt like there wasn't an answer for these people out there, the purely positive people. We couldn't get those people that had trained in that methodology. They didn't see any results when they came. And then we were more balanced and the dogs weren't going home with the same results later because it was all this relationship stuff. Maybe the dog walked fine on the street and stayed on the bed, but then the way the owner was handling the dog, there was still all this BS of the dog running around the house and crying and all of this stuff. So we just, we felt like there was a void in the market. And also we were burnt. I mean, it was a lot. We didn't have some terrible Yelp review or something in our lives that made us stop beyond the leash. It was great while it lasted, but it, we had, we had rode the wave out as long as we were going to be able to, if that makes sense. It was just taking a toll on Scott and myself. And he had hurt his back, um, a couple summers ago and it was stressful. It was, he herniated a disc in his back. We couldn't get an MRI because he couldn't lay flat in the freaking machine. So we actually went to the hospital to see if narcotics would help him get an MRI, which is a waste of time. But we met a great physical therapist there and that helped us. But Scott's in the hospital. I'm running back and forth from the training facility. I have 17 dogs to take care of. It's not the kind of business that you could have called and said like, oh, you know, we're closed today because we're not feeling well. Like people are going on vacation. No one else can handle their dog. We're the go-to, you know? So I was doing returns. I had a super aggressive dog. I had to return on my own. Like it was just a lot on us. And I just kind of felt like it was exploding. So when we saw this void in the industry, we thought, well, how could we fill this? And how could we reach more people with our knowledge and with our experience and also tap into these things that aren't really being dealt with in basic obedience. So that's kind of how canine healing came to be. Well, and I had noticed that a lot of people, a lot more dogs are coming in with anxiety and the owners admittedly had anxiety themselves. So the concept of the canine healing was to heal the dog, but also to help the people more, you know, from an emotional, spiritual perspective rather than the obedience. And it's kind of a, a vague thing. It's really hard to explain what we do, and it's not, it, because it's, it is behavior modification at its core, but it's helping people um, look at their dog differently because I think that the dog can heal the human, and in turn, the human can heal the dog. If a, do- if a person has anxiety, yes, these emotional support dogs are there to help the human, but if they're just making their dog anxious as well it's it's at the expense of the animal and uh, that's a shame you know you take a nice dog and it makes somebody feel good and then three to six months later the dog is a complete wreck drooling and and it doesn't have to be that way so 
And what had happened with us, we were doing all this traditional stuff with boot camps. We had started turning our follow-up classes into a lot of the exercises we use within canine healing. And those exercises were having more of a positive impact on the dogs and the owners and their relationships and the household moving forward. And they were able to be generalized more easily that we thought, well, maybe this is where we should head. And we're not saying that obedience training does isn't good or it doesn't work. I mean, we've talked about how you should train your dog and it's important, but this piece that was missing with the emotion and the relationship and everything else, kind of how we felt like we were seeing a void in the industry and we didn't know how to help. Some people feel like there's not anyone out there that can help me and help my dog because even if they've tried stuff before, they still feel like, oh, it doesn't work. My dog's stupid. My dog's not trainable or anything else. So, Well, let me just interrupt you there real quick because the thing is obedience training works fine. It, it always will. I mean, it's proven the techniques of traditional obedience training work fine. The problem is you have to be present. And that's why I got involved in dogs way back when I talked about initially with the police dogs. I had to be present when a dog was running at me that wanted to bite me. And I liked being present and in the moment because you're not thinking about your bills that you may have or problems with your kids at school or anything else. You're just living in that moment right then. And that's part of the problem people are having is they couldn't stay present even for a half hour dog training class. Their mind is God knows where. You know, if I tell someone take three steps and stop, they just take off and start healing and they don't, they're not even hearing me because they're not living in the present. So part of the canine healing is just trying to get people to just take a break, like turn off your phone. And I've been doing these, uh, these 10 minute meditations on the canine healing Facebook page. And that's what I'm doing. I just, you know, I wish you can step on your dog's leash, sit in a chair, turn off your phone and take 10 minutes of meditation. And if that makes you uncomfortable, don't meditate. Just sit there calmly for 10 minutes, you know? And, and that's really what the dogs need. And that's what we saw that they needed. And they would work well for us when we were doing the boot camps and everything else because we were in the moment and we were focused on the task. And we created that relationship with them that would work, but the owners couldn't do that. So being in the moment is important. I mean, if your dog is crazy at the vet, what did it look like from the point of your dog leaving the house to getting in the car? What did it look like from the point at your dog getting out of the car and going into the vet's office? If all of that was chaos, then it's probably going to be chaos once you get into the vet's office. I mean, we are total sticklers for, you know, okay, like if our dogs don't sit at the door, we're not going to just go through. We're not going to continue. We take time out of our day to fix these little things. And when you're in the moment like that, and when you're holding your dog accountable like that, they're feeling calmer and you're also feeling calmer. You can't be like, oh, we're going and da, 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 get wherever you are when you have to focus on getting your dog in this more present and this calmer state. Yeah. And it's not easy to do. It's, it's certainly something that you have to work at. And I think that's one of the big differences between all dog trainers when you get into uh, the best of the best. You know, it's how anal is the dog trainer? How clear are they about what they want to implement? And how patient are they as far as not willing to move forward if their dog is not performing the way they want their dog to behave, perform, you know, as far as a, a um, competitive standpoint. And the best of the best are very are, patient. They're crazy. Very patient. They, they know exactly what they want. And they will take two years before they heal their dog 10 feet if that's what it takes. I'm not that anal. I'm not going to do it. I mean, I know, I know enough about myself and my personality as far as, you know, how I will train a dog competitively. And I've always been able to train a dog where I can compete. I can not going to fail the trial. 
but I'm not going to be on the world stage because it's just not that important to me on that level. I just don't have that type of personality, whereas Jess does have more of that type of personality to a fault, a little bit nutty, you know, but that's just what, that's the trade-off. I mean, the best of the best in any field usually are a little bit nutty. Yeah. And we're trying not to make it so fanatical. It's not the dog obedience. You have to be super OCD and you have to be super precise about getting the results you want. The canine healing stuff is meant to be more casual. It's meant to be, you can sit there and read a book while you're doing some passive training. And that passive training actually has more of an impact on the dog than a lot of these structured exercises. Yeah, There's no, no technique that you need to master like with traditional, uh, dog training, whether it's positive or a balanced approach, whatever it is, this technique involved and technique like playing an instrument will only get better doing it the right way over and over and over again. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard to hold a clicker and the treat bag and the leash and everything else. When I started training with Scott, I honestly didn't have his leash work down for at least three years. I felt it the moment that I was working a dog like Scott and I said, oh, wow, I can do it now. And I had seen trainers train for decades and I was able to replicate certain things. So, you know, people, you can't expect somebody to be a dog trainer. And if you get a difficult dog, nobody wants to become a dog trainer. And we understand that you just want to have a freaking dog that lives in your house and exists with your family that you can all enjoy. So that's why canine healing came to be. We're trying to help people in a way that they haven't been helped before. That's user-friendly that you can do every day that includes some more fun stuff. We just released our C-Spot Sniff course. We're going to release a tricks course soon. Uh, We have an ESA course coming out soon because the ESA thing, emotional support animals, is a huge to-do. We have the How to Calm Your Canine program, and we have our own personal consults with people where we can coach you and help you through these things because we know it's not easy. And the last thing that we want you to ever think, and what a lot of people say, is it's not your fault. It's not your fault that your dog isn't doing it right. You need something that's going to work for you and your family where you can see results. And we totally get that. And we've lived through it now together for almost a decade. Seems longer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. I hope that uh, you learned a little bit more about both of us and that you still like us. Next week, we are going to go over traveling with dogs. And if you need to reach us, you can contact us at studio at thequirkydog.com. And in the meantime... Keep it quirky. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.